Welcome to a special installment of the Convivial Society, featuring my conversation with Andrew McLuhan. I can't recall how or when I first encountered the work of Marshall McLuhan. I think it might have been through the writing of one of his most notable students, Neil Postman. I do know, however, that McLuhan and others like Postman and Walter Ong, who built on his work, became a cornerstone of my own thinking about media and technology. So it was a great pleasure to speak with his grandson, Andrew, who is now stewarding and expanding the work of his grandfather and his father, Eric McLuhan, through the McLuhan Institute, of which he is the founder and director. I learned a lot about McLuhan through this conversation, and I think you'll find it worth your time. A variety of resources and sites were mentioned throughout the conversation, and I've tried to provide links to all of those in the email. Above all, make sure you check out the McLuhan Institute and consider supporting Andrew's work through his patron page. Andrew McLuhan, thank you for uh, speaking with me today for the Convivial Society. A pleasure to, to be doing so. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to just start with you and your work in the McLuhan Institute. So you're the director of the McLuhan Institute. Um, you're in an illustrious line of, uh, of thinkers, uh, including your father, Eric, and your grandfather, Marshall. So how did you get into the family business? I don't know if I may put it that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny because um, up here in, in Ontario, southern Ontario, Actually, I'm just about looking across at, at Rochester and, and the other side of Lake Ontario mm-hmm. from where I live. Um, our schools, uh, well, our province has gone into lockdown again with the mm-hmm. with Omicron, um, which sounds so <laughs> like the Omicron variation. It, it mm-hmm. sounds, <laughs> I don't know, like a Ludlam or a, a Michael Crichton story or something, but here we are. Right. A- anyway, as as a funny result of that, um, I've got two kids who are five and seven, um, Virgil, the youngest and Ezra, the eldest, um, and they're, they're home and have started asynchronous learning, which for this week is they just get sent a bunch of things to do. And next week it's going to be screen time for an obscene amount every day, mm-hmm. it, which, you know, I'll, I'll try not to digress too much, but there's, there's such a disconnect there because um, last year when we started going into this, uh, I looked up to see what the government of Canada recommends for screen time for kids, you know, and in fact, the federal government recommends no more than an hour of screen time for children under the age of 12 per day. And yet we're being asked to put our kids in front of a screen from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there. A little bit. Yeah, at least. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, there's, there's that. Yeah. Um, I mean, my solution and I don't know if I'll be able to get away with it is uh, I'm just, I just want to turn down the dimmer on my screen for Mm -hmm. them and they can just follow along as if they're listening to radio, Mm -hmm. you know, and at Mm -hmm. least save their eyes. Yeah. But anyway, that's one thing. But the funny thing is that today, um, I, I went to download a bunch of worksheets for them to do. And what comes up for my, my eldest in grade two is his first unit of media literacy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it starts with a banner headline. What is media? And it's going to be so hard for me to do this. 
<laughs> you know, it's like already we have a problem because media is what is me. Well, media is the plural form of medium, mm-hmm. you know? So what is a medium is really the question you're looking for. Uh, anyway, then it launches yeah. into a bunch of, um, you know, Shannon Weaver type stuff, which is all about channel and signal and, and blah, 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 which is fine as far as it goes. Um, but it, it only goes so far. Right. So anyway, um, I, I'm sorry, boys, but you happen to be born into the family you <laughs> and your education is going to be a little more in depth than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, how I got into it is, is by accident or whatever of birth. I happen to be the eldest grandson of Marshall and Corinne McLuhan. My father, Eric, was Marshall's eldest, uh, born in 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marshall and Corinne then had five other kids, my uncle Michael being the second son and the oldest, and then four girls in between. Um, and my dad, dad was born to the son of an English professor, you know, in the mm-hmm. 1940s. Mm-hmm. And um, that was his upbringing was very much what you might imagine a Catholic English professor's son might be brought up as, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, I've got a picture over here of uh, Marshall and my dad standing together and Marshall's wearing a, a suit and tie and my dad's wearing a suit and tie with short pants, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, <laughs> that to me just really sums it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, the professor's son and, my dad was really raised, uh, you know, he was taught Greek and Latin and given a classical education. And, um, that's, that's circumstances he was born into. And later in life, uh, you know, he developed his own interests and, um, he actually ran away and joined the air force, uh, because he was born in St. Louis. He was a U.S. citizen. Hmm. Uh, my grandmother was American, uh, through and through from Texas, Fort Worth. Hmm. Uh, you know, Mayflower type stuff. I'm proud of it. Um, and my dad spent the first half dozen years of his life in St. Louis. So in the sixties with Vietnam, he was of age and, uh, I think he used it a bit as an excuse, um, to break away and to kind of be able to try and find mm-hmm. his own thing. But the excuse was, well, I don't want to get drafted into the army. Um, he'd always been fascinated with airplanes and had been mm. building model airplanes since he was a kid. He said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to enlist to the air force. Okay. And that way I won't get drafted into the army and shipped yes. overseas. And it worked. He, he enlisted. He uh, was stationed at Malmstrom air force base in, in Montana. Uh, and did his, his years and, and got out. Um, however, while he was there, understanding media came out. And his dad sent him a copy. I have it over, over here with a really nice inscription, you know, to my son, love dad. Um, and my dad read it and he got interested. And once you get interested, it's kind of over, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because it's, (laughs) if you have any, any curiosity about this stuff, uh, once, once you, you taste the worm, you're hooked, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that certainly describes my experience. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that's kind of what happened. Dad came back from the Air Force and started working with his dad. Um, Marshall, uh, got the, 
chair of the humanities at Fordham University for 67, 68. My dad went with him. And my dad basically became his assistant and worked with him until Marshall died in 1980, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. 1980. Hmm. Uh, this year was the 41st anniversary. Oh, of his this this July, Marshall would have been t- turning 111 years old, just kind of auspicious. In any case, um, Marshall died in 1980 at the age of 69, um, which is very young, really. Mm-hmm. Um, a year and a bit earlier, he'd had a stroke and um, wasn't able to talk anymore. Uh, he could still understand everything. Mm-hmm. He could communicate even. Um, you know, he was totally there, but he just couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was so frustrating for somebody who talked and talked and talked mm-hmm. and talked. Mm-hmm. He didn't even, um, he didn't even write books anymore so much as dictate them. Mm. He was, he was a talker. Mm-hmm. Dialogue was his main form of discovery mm-hmm. and exploration and communication. Um, and so to be robbed of that overnight, you can imagine was, mm probably the worst thing for him yeah um for some whose ears had been bleeding from years of having them talked off it was maybe a bit of a blessing but anyway (laughs) there's there's a famous there's a famous anecdote um neil postman talks about how he and somebody else were sharing a hotel room with marshall uh in new york or you know some conference and marshall had them up to like two or three in the morning (laughs) just chat 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 and it was fascinating but they also needed to sleep. <laughs> so at some point they said, Marshall, this is great, but we need to sleep, man. We're up in the morning, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. But Marshall was famous for that. He yeah. called people at two in the morning with some great news that couldn't wait. And um, that's just who he was. His mind yeah. was always working, but um, you know, reflecting on it, this, the stroke and the inability to speak must've been immediately a shock, mm. but, I think it also gave him a little bit of freedom that he hadn't had in a long time, which was the removal of, of a certain amount of pressure, mm. you know, because he couldn't talk, he couldn't communicate. Mm. He didn't have to, you mm-hmm. know? And so, um, I was, I was born in 78. I was a little baby. I have two older sisters. Um, he was able to stop and smell the roses a bit, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm. in a different way, uh, to enjoy family and life. There's some pictures from when he and Corinne visited Long Island uh, and visited uh, Edmund Carpenter and his wife. And um, you can see these pictures online. The look of joy on Marshall's face, pure delight mm. splashing around in the waves with Edmund Carpenter. Mm. He's having the time of his life. And in other pictures from the 60s and 70s, you'll see he's having a good time, but not that good a time, yeah. you know? So... It, it is interesting. Anyway, Marshall died in 1980 at the age of 69. It wasn't expected. And here's my dad left. Uh, he'd been working with him for over a decade. And um, what next? What now? You know, there was nothing. Marshall had the Center for Culture and Technology at the University of Toronto, but actually they closed that um, after he had his stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, it was supposed to be temporary, but um, it was essentially... Well, kind of like you there, they filled it full of equipment and used it for storage. <laughs> um, very shortly uh, thereafter, there wasn't much McLuhan left in the building. Mm-hmm. McLuhan had left the building. Yeah. Um, 
they did re, re, pardon me, relaunch it a couple years later. There was a lot of outcry at the time. People rallied and got letters of support from Woody Allen and all kinds of people. Don't close the center, all mm-hmm. of this. But of course it, you know, it closed, mm-hmm. uh, for complicated reasons. Um, and although it did open a couple years later and it's open today, um, it was never the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my dad was kind of left to find his own way and, uh, he kind of toiled on his own, released a few books, several important books, actually, um, starting with Laws of Media, The New Science, mm-hmm. uh, which was a project he and Marshall had begun together mm-hmm. um, in the early 1970s, um, which was a real turning point in Marshall McLuhan's, in the McLuhan work, because it was when they discovered that um, all human technologies have certain things in common, you know, which is a huge discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems to escape a lot of attention, uh, but maybe we'll, we'll catch up. Mm-hmm. In any case, I found myself in a similar position, um, coming up on four years ago now. Um, for the last decade or so in around 2009, 2010, um, I undertook, uh, the inventory and documentation of Marshall McLuhan's library. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, um, asked for only one thing after Marshall passed away. And that was his books. Hmm. Um, because Marshall's library, which is around 6,000 volumes or items, um, was a research library. Uh, and it was, it was heavily used. He used every book like it was a collaborator, like its author was a collaborator and its contents were, you know, an encyclopedia. Hmm. Um, he used them as jumping off points famously, hmm. you know, um, he said his work is a footnote to Joyce, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, mm-hmm. to Innes. He said it was applied Joyce. Mm-hmm. Um, he used all these different authors um, and he took their work in different and unexpected places, um, clashing them against other authors and ideas and his own. And that really was, was the mark of his own genius was, was taking these things in unexpected places. Um, whether or not the author thanked him for it and in many cases, I don't think they did thank him for it, but anyway, um, so my dad knew the value of, of the library because it was full of his annotations, his notes. And, you know, because Marshall was this, um, wheels always working guy, um, there was so much of his work that he never actually developed fully. Um, and it lay kind of embryonic in the footnotes and in marginalia and mm-hmm. endnotes in his library. So my dad, my dad wanted these things so that he could continue the work. Anyway, um, 2009, 2010, he decided that it was time for that library to go somewhere else. Um, you know, in institutions, say where it could be properly cared for and where it would be accessible for people, for other mm-hmm. people to research and use. Um, you know, cause my dad only really used a fraction of it in his own work. So the first thing to do was to make an inventory. And uh, I sat down at this desk I'm sitting in front of now. And I looked through my dad's shelves and I'm sitting in his library now. Um, and I I picked out all the books that were Marshall's and I, ma- I started making an inventory. Mm-hmm. And the idea was just to get a handle on what was there, um, you know, the author, uh, publication data, and whether there was marginalia mm-hmm. and, and to what extent, you know, a very basic right. thing. Um, and this was my kind of introduction to the work because, um, you know, growing up McLuhan, you start to get a sense at an earlyish age that people know who your granddad was, you mm-hmm. know, and that that's not 
usual. <laughs> right. Um, and then the questions start to come, you know? So, um, I, I start to look in it on my own and I, I was a teenager when I tried to read understanding media and it just went over my head. Right. Mm. Um, and then I discovered punk rock. <laughs> and when people asked me what it meant, I'd tell them where they could take it. And, you know, why don't you read a book yourself and et cetera. Uh, cause you know, I'm trying to figure out who I am. Yeah. Um, in my twenties, I read understanding media again and it made more sense, but not enough. Uh, but this, um, this project for my dad was when it really started to make sense. And not only that, but, um, going through Marshall's books was, uh, unexpectedly a way to get to know Marshall, Hmm. um, through his marginalia. Yeah. It's, um, it's odd, you know, they say, uh, they say when you die, you weigh slightly, but measurably less than when you're alive, you know, and that, and that weight is maybe it's your soul, right? Well, I, th- I think that in a library, a collection of books like this that are full of your, your marginalia, you know, as, as you use a pencil, um, the graphite gets left behind, you know, the mm. pencil gets shorter and shorter mm. and shorter and the book gets just a little bit heavier. Mm. And I think it's more than just graphite that's mm. left behind. Mm-hmm. I think there's something else. There's something special about that. Um, I think you leave more than that. I think you leave part of your curiosity, part of your soul. Even. Right. So uh, I, I tend to wax poetic about this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here I am sitting in my father's library, which is around the same size and kind of the same sort of composition. There's, um, you know, media studies. There's a big McLuhan section, obviously. There's rhetoric and classics and uh, satire and a whole shelf of Stephen King. His dad was a huge fan of Stephen mm-hmm. King. Um, he thought he was one of the great writers, uh, stylistically of, of our time. Um, and you, you can't help but feel that vibe and that presence, mm-hmm. uh, which has been so comforting for me after my dad died. Cause I realized, uh, he left a lot of himself behind, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, here I am doing this inventory, uh, and I discover, all these things and, and the concepts start to make sense. And I started traveling with my dad because, um, he was diabetic. Um, and his blood sugar would go low before he realized it. Um, and so he needed somebody to travel with him who knew what to do, right? right. Which is usually find a bottle of orange juice and slam mm-hmm. it down. And before he goes into a full on seizure. Um, so I started to do that because actually, uh, my dad was, uh, asked to go give a talk in Poland and my mom used to travel with them. And if it was a talk in Italy or in Hawaii or, you know, whatever, France, she's all for it. Yeah. Poland, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Don't strike her fancy. Right. So I said, sure. I'll, I was asked if I wanted to go. I said, sure. Yeah, I'll go to Poland. Uh, and Poland's an amazing place. I've been yeah. a couple times now, yeah. but um, uh, as it turns out, my dad had a really bad, uh, diabetic thing and uh it would have been really bad if I hadn't been on hand so mm-hmm. um I became his travel companion from then on and it's an amazing thing you know um we'd leave here and in the car to the airport waiting for the plane on the plane getting there till the time we got back it was just me and dad mm-hmm. you know and talking about media and this stuff 
And I had all the questions, all the stupid, dumb questions, and he had all the patience in the world. Yeah. Um, and he was so great at explaining things uh, in person. Mm-hmm. The writing is a little more difficult to parse, but in person, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, he's a writer and writers write, you know, so he, he <laughs> dad liked to, he was a great writer. So he, he liked to use his words uh, effectively, but um Anyway, as I said, uh, I was kind of done. So, um, I've been working with him for about 10 years when, uh, in spring of 2018, we went to Columbia and he was invited to give a talk at the opening of a media ecology doctorate program at, uh, Universidad de la Sabana in Bogota. And he gave this speech, um, media ecology in the 21st century, which is up on the McLuhan Institute YouTube page. If you want to check it out. Yeah. Um, and it was incredible. It's really actually incredible speech. Um, and the next day, uh, we we're flying out. I went out to see a museum and he died in our hotel room oh. while I was out. Um, which is a crazy thing. Wow. Uh, and really there was, even if I'd yeah. been there, there was nothing I could do, but, uh, is a messed up thing. Yeah. So he died very suddenly. He, he lived almost 10 years more than his dad. He was 76. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and we we're a little more prepared because, um, that year I decided I'd create something called the McLuhan Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, that the summer previous, uh, summer of 2017, I guess, um, we were at the Media Ecology Association annual in California at St. Mary's uh, University. And, um, you know, I, I kind of got a cold sweat because I realized dad wasn't going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing in place to keep going. Um, Marshall may have had the center, but my dad was just a guy in his barn <laughs> writing books and giving talks once in a while. Uh, he was an independent, you know, he yeah. never really was employed by university. Universities didn't want him, uh, which is tragic, but anyway. Um, and, uh, it, it so much died with him, mm-hmm. uh, cause nobody was continuing Marshall's work the way he and dad did it. So, um, I thought, okay, well, I'll start the McLuhan Institute and it'll be a bit of an umbrella place to, um, do research and education and take care of these archives. And more importantly, take the work forward. Um, because I didn't go to university, actually. Um, I barely graduated high school. I just wasn't interested in that stuff when I was younger. Um, so maybe because of that, I've always been more interested in practical things. Um, you know, I've worked for the last 10 plus years as an upholsterer. Um, I run a small business taking people's chairs and taking them apart and putting them back together again. And maybe because of that, I see everything as tools and what is this useful for? Yeah. And that's what interests me in McLuhan work. Yeah. Um, I'm less interested in theory. Um, theory is great as far as it goes, but we're, I think we're post theory, you know, we're, we're at a, at a place where we really need to, um, you know, do something about our technology technological circumstance if we're ever going to get ahead of the effects and instead of just 
um, you know, getting bombarded by them all the time. And I think this was um, what Marshall was trying to do throughout all his work was understand technology so that we could take a, take a handle of it. So um, I decided that that would be my focus uh, to, you know, try and uh, bring forward these practical things like the laws of media, um, the ways to understand technology today and tomorrow um, to hopefully inspire those in charge to those in charge of creating technologies to do it a bit more intentionally uh, and those in charge of our societies to hopefully help us guide those people a bit more. Um, so that's how I came to, to start the McLuhan Institute. And it's, it's really just me and a, a bunch of people who believe in what I'm doing and, and help out with um, little things behind the scenes. And um, what I mainly do is um, archival work. Uh, I have a big archive here of McLuhan things, basically whatever's not in the national archive in Ottawa, that's Marshall's papers and what's not in the um, Fisher book library in Toronto, where Marshall's books are, um, is here. So uh, my dad's books, a lot of papers. Um, I even have a bunch of recordings. Actually, this is kind of fun. Um, uh, I found a couple boxes of reel-to-reel recordings, uh, which I don't think have ever been heard. And I've digitized uh, most of them at this point. Uh, a handful of them are Monday night seminars. Are you familiar with the Monday night seminars? No. Mm -mm. Okay. So um, as part of Marshall's uh, work at university of Toronto, um, he held what he called the Monday night seminar, which was for his students, but it was also open and anybody could drop in. It was at the center for culture and technology. Mm -hmm. Um, It was Monday nights. There's usually a box of wine or something floating around a cigar or two. And, um, Marshall would often have a guest. Uh, sometimes it was, you know, the prime minister of Canada had even dropped in once or twice. Um, if there were visiting dignitaries, maybe they would be there. Yeah. Maybe it was just a prof of this or that or, or who knows what. Right. Uh, and they would just basically talk and then open to questions from the floor. Mm-hmm. So I found a, a stack of these reel to reels. Um, and I believe they're Monday night seminars, these ones. Uh, cause I looked up the dates and the first one is January 22nd, uh, and it's 1977. Uh, and there's about, there's not quite a dozen of them ending April 3rd. So what I'm going to do is I've got those ones digitized and I'm going to premiere them on my YouTube page according to their dates. So the first one's going to go up January 22nd, uh, and, and then over the Monday nights for the next few months. I'm trying to figure it out. I might do some kind of listen slash watch party where we can listen to the seminar and then, mm. you know, have a chat about it, whoever yeah. wants to join in kind of thing. But this is what I'm trying to do is um, make things accessible. Uh, and I mean that in two ways. For one, just simply providing access mm. to materials um, because uh, it's no good behind closed doors and to make things accessible. Um what I mean by that is, is not that um, people can't understand, but, um, you know, as, as you're familiar with and, and anybody who's tried to read McLuhan's work, um, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, a large reason why it's difficult is that it was written in a different time for a different audience. Uh, and we don't have the same background that people back then did. 
And not only that, but um, it's mostly poetry, you know, and and people approach it like it's fiction or, or even nonfiction. Right. But um, I, d- I learned this in the last year plus when I I talked myself into teaching uh, an in-depth look at understanding mm-hmm. media. And um, <laughs> I really set out to just teach the first seven chapters, part one. Um, which are actually tools for looking at technology. Mm-hmm. And then the next the other 26 chapters are sort of taking those tools and looking right. at technologies. Right. Um, uh, but what I discovered was that there, it's very much like poetry. Um, each of the classes was three hours. Um, so per chapter. And as I'm looking through it, I'm finding this reference. And when you look at the quote in context, it really expands what you're looking at and, um, you start to pick this apart and it expands just like a poem does. Hmm. Um, and that's uh, kind of essential if you want to make sense of it. You really have to to go kind of deeply into it. And a poem is the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just read through a poem once and, and get it all. You know, it takes, it requires work. So um, that's part of what I see my role as is trying to, bring these things to light today in ways that normal people, um, that is people like me who maybe didn't go to university or, um, because we're the ones dealing with the effects of all this right. stuff, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that's my very long winded, <laughs> uh, answer to, no. uh, to the McLuhan. And, you know, I, it's, uh, been going almost four years now and, um, I kind of did it as a, a last ditch thing to see, um, if I could make a go of it. Because like I said, I work, I run a small business and, um, it's been, it's notoriously difficult to make a living doing these things. Um, if you're not a professor or right. whatever, I'm just in, the, I'm just a guy. I haven't even been able to register the McLuhan Institute as a business because they don't like me using the word institute. Uh, because I'm not affiliated <laughs> with the university. So, you know, it's, <laughs> there's that, but <laughs> yeah. we'll get there eventually. Um, but to my, I almost said to my surprise, it's working, but it's, it's not surprise. I believe so deeply that this work is needed in the world that I just know it's got to work. Um, and so far, so good. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for all of that. Uh, not long-winded at all. Um, and I, I jotted down some notes along the way um, to follow up on. You, you mentioned laws of media, and would you think that would you say that's a good entry point for someone who wants to sort of initiate themselves into uh, the McLuhan School of, of Media Studies? I don't know if I can call it that or not, but um, I tend to just point people to understanding media. Um, but I, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. It's a great way in for the rare person. Okay. Um, it's a very difficult way in laws of media is one of the harder McLuhan books to read. Mm. Um, dad, dad put it together and it was published in 1988. It was a project which they called UMR or understanding media revised mm. that Marshall and Eric started in 72. Um, they were approached by the publisher to do a 10th anniversary edition of understanding media. And it turned into something much more. Uh, it turned into laws of media. Yeah. 
um, not just, you know, the publisher wanted a new introduction, maybe a chap, a couple extra chapters, and they came up with this whole thing. Yeah. And they're like, no, no thanks. Nice. <laughs> um, and, uh, Marshall died in the process. Uh, dad put it together. He was, you know, working on his master's and PhD and published laws of media. And, um, it reads like he just got his PhD, yeah. you know, um, so I, I would not recommend that as an entry point for people. I'm, I wouldn't even recommend understanding media as an entrant, as an entrance point. If you're coming at it cold. Yeah. Um, there are a couple, really the best place to start is, and this is one of the weird things about growing up uh, a grandchild of a famous person in our age is um, Marshall is all over YouTube, you know, right. He's uh, recordings, yeah. uh, videos and audio, hundreds of hours on mm-hmm. YouTube. And that's a, a bizarre thing for a person. It's, it's great for me and for my kids. Yeah. They'll be able to get to know their grandfather. Um, cause I can just show them. Right. Right. Um, but as I said, um, Marshall and my father were great in dialogue. He was a talker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's how he worked. He developed things while he was talking about them. Um, and often it was, I guess it was more monologue than dialogue or it was an interior dialogue anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's really the best place to start is, uh, go onto YouTube and check out some interviews. There's a great interview. It's a really fun one he did, uh, with Norman Mailer. It's called the debate, right? Yeah. The the Mailer McLuhan debate. And it's hilarious. It's a great way of seeing. Marshall was so intentional with how he interacted with media, right? With, um, with television or with a, a reporter for a magazine, different McLuhan different at different times. Um, and he really shows his chops in this mailer debate because Norman, you know, is this like hab addict kind of guy and he's getting more and more excited and worked up and Marshall's getting more and more laid back. <laughs> and it's just hilarious to watch. Uh, to witness. And, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at Marshall and the Norman Mailer thing and then look at him, uh, in an interview on some other panel or something else, very, very different. So I would check out the Mailer debate. Um, one on there with, um, McLuhan, W.H. Auden and Buckminster Fuller, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. So good. The Playboy interview, if you want to read something is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and as is the meetings, the massage, that's a really good, yeah. uh, entry point. And I, I mentioned before we started recording, uh, understanding me is a, a collection of interviews that I, that I also found. I actually, I think, uh, you know, I said, I recommend understanding media, but in fact, I, I think I started there in a, in a sense with, uh, those interviews and that collection, um, mm-hmm. which I think d- did make the work accessible. I had Norma Mailer's been, uh, kind of in the air recently because of, uh, some kerfuffle with some book that was coming out. But, um, oh, it really? reminded, it reminded me of, um, uh, Jeet Heer, the Canadian, um, a literary critic and, and political commentator, uh, wrote a, an, an essay about McLuhan, uh, in 2011, I think, which I just had occasion to, to remember recently. And, and in it, he writes, uh, it's a measure of McLuhan's ability to recalibrate the intellectual universe that in, in this debate, Mailer, a Charlie Sheen style roughneck with a history of substance abuse, domestic violence, and public mental breakdowns comes across as the voice of sobriety and sweet reason. <laughs> uh, 
And I thought that was a wonderful uh, way of capturing uh, the, the dynamics there. Um, Another one, actually, um, Understanding Me was edited by David Staines and Stephanie McLuhan. Stephanie, one of my aunts, Marshall's daughters. Um, she also uh, has a website called MarshallMcLuhanSpeaks.com. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which is a really great resource um, because it has uh, a whole bunch of great video clips with their transcripts. Yes. Um, and that's that's also a good place to go. And I, I will definitely go back and, and try to add all these links into the um, notes for the interview so that uh, one, one thing I will up. say is uh, the worst place to start with McLuhan work is with a secondary source. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that. I had a question about whether you thought there were any good introductions, secondary introductions. So um, uh, the Gordon biography, I think I, I, I've kind of delved in and out of that over, over the years. Um, did, did you have any, are, are there any good secondary works that you would recommend on McLuhan? Not really. Uh, and this is not saying anything against anybody, Terry Gordon or anybody else. Right. Um, they're fine as far as they go. Um, Douglas Copeland did a mm-hmm. sort of biography a few years ago. Right. Um, which again is fine as far as it goes. He introduced McLuhan to, um, to his readership in his style, mm-hmm. um, which is cool. Um, the thing is you don't really need secondary sources because mm-hmm. there's so much McLuhan out there. Yeah. Not, not only his books, but just all these recordings, um, all these interviews, essays, um, they're, there is so much out there. It's ridiculous. I haven't even gone through it all myself one time. Right. Like there's so much there because the Marshall McLuhan that we know is almost the later McLuhan. You know, he did a whole lot of work before anybody in the public sphere knew who he was. He mm-hmm. was very well known in academia right. as a literary critic, for example, um, for a couple decades before anybody else ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, it goes to your comment about, um, his writing being poetry, right? You, there, there are no good summaries of a poem, right? Because you, you lose the, the power of the poem in the, in the summary because the, the effect is in the form itself. Exactly. Is that a way of, of describing, I think the, my, my, my sense has been that, that Marshall McLuhan was, was self-conscious about this, that, that his, his, the form of his writing itself would be part of the effect that it wouldn't, be easily translatable into a, a more comprehensible or accessible form because the, the form was the point, right? Well, very much. And um, nobody knew more than he did the limitations of, of any given form. Mm-hmm. And he talks about that explicitly. Um, and this was the funny things. One of the funny things about me teaching this class on understanding media. I have, I have the text here that I used. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. You can yeah. see. This probably weighs a pound more because of all the annotation I put into it. But um, it was kind of one of the ridiculous things about me even doing that class was I'm doing that very thing uh, to a poem. Mm -hmm. But um, teaching it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Mm. I was not prepared for it. Mm. I didn't consider uh, I didn't consider the audience. And that is. Well, that's a classic rhetorical mistake you know and i should have got my my wrist slapped a little bit but anyway (laughs) because you know marshall and my father were masters of rhetoric but Mm. uh, which is all about audience and effect um 
you know, is rhetoric of technology. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't take into account the, the miraculous group of people that assembled around it. And it's really amazing. Um, I did the course through, uh, a place in San Francisco called Gray Area. And they're located in an old theater, the Grand Theater in the Mission. And they're kind of arts and technology hub. Uh, they do a lot of cool stuff, but they also do a lot of um, education uh, and online learning. And when I floated the idea of doing a course on understanding media, um, the director, Barry Through, who, who I know, said, we'd love to do this with you. Mm. And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. Mm. Uh, and because of that, they have a, a huge mailing list. And because of that, a bunch of people who probably wouldn't have known about it otherwise um, signed up for the class. I ended up with um, 30, 40 students in total. And the students really made the class, honestly. Um, we did it. We did it live uh, with a weekly Zoom call, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I read the book and sort of gave anecdotes and explanations as I as I could. Um, I did a ton of research before looking up all the quotes and where they came from and why Marshall chose them and um, why this was relevant or who this was to Marshall and his work. And uh, But the students throwing in what it, what it meant to them, what it said to them, bringing their variety of experiences. And look, like one of the guys was on the design team of the iPhone um, other people are working in advertising or authors or students or, um, you know, we gave a bunch of, um, because I'm all about access, uh, gray area joined me in offering this thing called the diversity scholarship, um, because the course wasn't cheap. That mm -hmm. had to be worth my time. Um, but I didn't want that to be a barrier for people mm -hmm. because, um, you know, this is part of my reason for making things accessible is we don't know where the next breakthroughs in media studies are going to come from. They, they could come from the slums of uh, Mumbai or they could come from, uh, you know, Trump Tower or who knows, right? Mm -hmm. The point is to make it as accessible as possible. So we offered this thing called the diversity scholarship and it was open to anybody, um, especially people who are traditionally, um, denied or, or have barriers to access mm -hmm. to courses like this. Um, and we got a bunch of applications and I originally thought of doing maybe 10% as sponsored seats, but when they asked me, okay, so who are we going to pick? I found, well, how can I, <laughs> how can I pick? Yeah, you know? right. Um, so I just decided anybody who, um, who felt they needed the scholarship, um, who was brave enough, uh, to put it on the line and say, I need this help mm -hmm. you're in, yeah. you know? Right. Um, and that kind of <laughs> let me off the hook from trying to decide who is worthy or, yeah. or whatever, you know, because mm -hmm. how am I going to measure that? Mm -hmm. But, um, so this was the really cool thing. And the other thing that I didn't expect was, um, I'm not a school and neither is gray area. I'm not, a. I can't give you course credit for doing mm -hmm. this. Um, so I wasn't about to do any assignments, but I discovered, uh, that people wanted assignments and assignments are actually a great way to synthesize material, you know, um, whether or not you're being graded on it and whether or not you get a degree or certificate at the end of it, um, it, 
producing something is a great way of actually settling the information into your body, into your mind and Mm -hmm. understanding it, right? Spitting it out the other end and seeing what comes out. Um, And I encouraged the assignments. I said, look, you can write a paper, keep it to one page or less. Um, or you can do an interpretive dance or write a poem or sing a song or whatever, yeah. produce something in, yeah. in reaction. That's what this is about. Right. And um, we got some amazing work out of it, some poetry. Mm. One of the people in the last portion was actually a retired professor um, with a long history in media studies. Uh, and he, his contributions were amazing. Yeah. Um, everybody had something to contribute that made the, the course and the whole experience better for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, as, as much as it's kind of ridiculous to try and teach a poem that made it, yeah. that justified it and made it so valuable. So actually, as it happens, I'm looking to do it again <laughs> because, yeah. uh, well, it seems kind of crazy to do all that work and, and not do it again, yeah. but I'm also just excited to, to see what happens with a new group of students and, you know, and what more we can learn. Cause this is a book that just keeps on, keeps on giving. Um, yeah, you can, you can almost just read it from cover to cover once a year and probably get fresh right. stuff from it every time. Uh, Cause I found every time I've come back to it, I've learned more. Especially as it inter- interacts with uh, the continuously emerging media landscape and helps mm-hmm. you bring you insights into that and, and the insights themselves may expand the, the theory. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that sounds like a wonderful experience. I, um, I, you, you noted Harold Innes and, and I confess I, I, he's one of these seminal thinkers who, uh, I've neglected and I, I haven't paid enough attention to. Um, would you, I mean, would you classify him as, as one of the key influences uh, for McLuhan? Yeah. Um, Marshall literally said that his work was a footnote to Innes yeah. and he wasn't, he wasn't being, he wasn't just flattering right. for the sake of it there. Um, uh, and I'm the, I'm the same way, actually. I'm this funny thing, which is I'm a McLuhan specialist, <laughs> which is ridiculous because McLuhan was like the opposite of a specialist. Yes. Right. But a specialized in McLuhan is a certain irony, but Mm. um, that's, you know, the nature of, of where I am, I guess. The thing is uh, McLuhan's work is so huge. um, It touches on so many things, but then it branches out. And like I said, I I haven't made it all the way through all of the McLuhan work yet. So I've got so much catch up to do. I haven't, I haven't gone too deep into Innes either. Um, Marshall wrote uh, an introduction to uh, a new edition of the bias of communication, um, which is worth checking out. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. uh, And he, he's written other places about Innes um, that will serve to, to tell you what he, what he thought of Innes's work. Um, Innes is one of these figures who Marshall kind of took his work and just, took it a step further. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, um, it's like what they did with, with laws of media is they broadened, you know, one of Marshall's big, um, contributions to media studies is just in what is, what are media, you know, what is a medium. Right. And in laws of media, he and Eric, um, 
well, understanding media colon the extensions of man. Mm-hmm. Marshall defined a medium as an extension of some human ability or faculty, right? A, a, a literal extension of ourselves, of our being. Um, and in Laws of Media, Marshall and Eric expanded it to say, uh, you know, a medium is any, basically anything human beings make or do, mm-hmm. right? Can be considered uh, a medium or an object of media study. And that is um, worlds larger than the convention, you know, right. conventionally. And this was driven home to me by my kid's assignment today, yeah. <laughs> asking what is media? Uh, because it's saying, a me- they're saying a medium is a-, a book or a television or a smartphone. And that's true, but right. it's a lot more than right. that. Right. You know, we, if it goes beyond communication, but even within communication, we have body language, right. we have smell, uh, we have all kinds of different ways that we communicate that, uh, you know, defy that category. Um, so this was one thing that uh, Marshall did with, with Innes's work was move it beyond um, staples mm-hmm. uh, and, and toward a larger world of, of what we consider media. I, we began, the, I think, the exchange that led to, to this conversation, um, thinking about one very specific line from McLuhan that you um, you mentioned. Uh, there is absolutely no inevitability as long as there is a willingness to contemplate what is happening. And um, I, I was happy to report that that had been the tagline for my old blog for many years. Um, yeah. I was struck by that line when I first encountered it. Um, and I... Uh, I was I was interested in this because I, I think sometimes McLuhan is, is read as a tech determinist, uh, and yet this this line suggests something very different from that. Um, and then foregrounds this idea of of contemplating what is happening uh, or understanding what is happening. Um, and, and you suggested there had been some evolution in his thinking along these lines. Um, and I'm wondering if you just speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah. how, how you think of of McLuhan and on that axis, which I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how much I, how much stock I want to give to this axis of, of the, the, you know, where on one end you have determinism and on the other, um, something like, uh, I don't know, uh, voluntarism where all that matters is, is what you do with it. Um, I think they're both false, false yeah, categories right. and overly simplistic. Um, it's, it's a great line. It's, it's so McLuhan. There's absolutely no inevitability. You know, if you just think about that for a second, he's having fun with you. Yes. You know, because uh, it's it's redundant. Um, There's absolute, but um, he's giving you his philosophy. And that is, uh, he is a technological determinist in the sense that, um, you know, he believes in the form uh the forming power of technology of mm-hmm. the form um, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us mm-hmm. um, media people don't like the people are, are very uncomfortable by admitting the power that technologies mm-hmm. have over us by how they shape our senses. And um, you know, Marshall broke it down into personal and social consequences of technologies, the personal in that, um, these technologies shape our sensory lives. 
and they shape our sense of self, our identity, mm-hmm. and then they extend and they shape the way we relate with each other and they shape the way societies organize and evolve. So yeah, technology technologies are determining factors, but are they absolutely determining? Mm-hmm. And no, they're not because um, they all come back to us. We are the etymology of technologies, you know, extensions of man, extensions of humans, extensions of people. Um, it comes back to us. And that also makes uncomfortable because, well, that means we're responsible. Right. And people, <laughs> responsibility like that is heavy, right. you know, um, because so far we've been doing an absolutely terrible job of being in any way responsible in how we develop and use technologies. You know, um, it's like when you watch a commercial for a new drug, you know, and they show these people, this couple prancing slow motion through a field on a nice sunny day. And they look like they're having the time of their lives. And in the background at warp speed, this guy is describing all the horrible things that are going to go wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like that using this product might cause you, uh, your bowels to bleed and you know, all this other stuff. Right. Right. Well, you're just paying attention to these. Oh yeah. But we could be running through the field and having such yeah. a great time. Um, it's the side effects that get you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the side effects turn into the main effects. Right. <laughs> and that's, this is what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and Marshall, Marshall did believe. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Um, we got ourselves into this mess. We can get ourselves out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's one thing that we're great at as humans, it's problem solving. Um, we just tend to create more problems than we solve, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure it has to be that way. Yeah. And Marshall, who, um was a really smart guy felt that we could do better and yeah. and you know the problem is is that we tend to optimize for human prop for profit mm-hmm. and not for human flourishing right well we can make different choices really uh we can and i think we have to the climate crisis has has brought this this home um in a, in the climate but we're in a very similar almost parallel crisis technologically mm-hmm. and the stakes are just as high honestly if not higher um but yeah marshall's uh, thought evolved on it um i mentioned to you in that in that thread and it's it's this is why it's awesome being in a place like this in this library um, which is in an old barn converted to be a, an office uh, with stacks of books and papers lying around and this is my excuse for not being overly organized is that I can just happen upon stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so germane. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's this article, it's a reprint from uh, the teacher's college record, November, 1955. And it's an article by Marshall called a historical approach to the media. Um, and on that front page, uh, the paragraph reads, Improvements in the means of communication are usually based on a shift from one sense to another, and this involves a rapid refocusing of all previous experience. So that's one of the basic tenets of McLuhan Media Studies is that um, each technology tends to affect the senses in a unique Mm -hmm. way, and 
that the senses work together so that when you affect one sense, you affect them all. Mm-hmm. Um, Marshall liked to use the work of Jacques Lucirin, uh, who was, who became blind as a young child and wrote very eloquently on mm. it in a, in a book called And There Was Light. Um, mm. and it's an easy illustration because people who go blind, uh, at some point, not from birth, but in their life, will talk about how, um, gradually or all of a sudden their other senses are affected so i lost my sight but all of a sudden I, my hearing mm-hmm. is more acute my sense of smell is more acute my tactile my touch mm-hmm. is heightened this is the idea of the senses communis that the senses all work together mm-hmm. so that when you affect one sense you affect them all and that has huge consequences um uh, for who we are as humans, existentially who we are, mm-hmm. it affects um, what we enjoy aesthetically, um, what we enjoy eating, our, our tastes in music and whatever else, but it also affects things like our sense of, of right or wrong, you know, our, our moral compasses and what's important to us. Um, and this, this comes back to the interplay of the senses. So when you, when you bring it to technology and you mess with the sensory balance, right. this is what you're messing with. Right. And that's uncomfortable. That is what tech company is thinking about this when they put out a product. None of them. They're, they're willfully ignorant at best, yeah. but um, we need to do better. So this is what Marshall's talking about. He says, um, and this is 1955. He says, it is therefore a simple maxim of communication study that any change in the means of communication will produce a chain of revolutionary consequences at every level of culture and politics. And here's a kicker. And because of the complexity and components in this process, prediction and control are not possible. Hmm. Marshall says in 1955. Um, in that same decade, he was uh, hired by the NAEB, the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, to develop a curriculum of media studies for high schools. Mm-hmm. Um, he did this for the next couple of years and in uh, 58, 59, uh, and he produced something called the Report on the Project in Understanding New Media, um, where he, he changed his mind uh, after, after studying it in, in depth, um, he actually discovered the opposite that actually um, we can get a handle on this mm. stuff and prediction and control are possible. Mm. Um, for the next four years, he revised and rewrote and massaged and basically distilled into poetry, this report. And it was published in 64 as understanding media, mm. the extensions of man. Uh, so you have, you have a bit of a, a trilogy there from the 1960 report to understanding media in 64 to laws of media in mm-hmm. 1988. There are three parts. Yeah. Um, and in fact, dad made it plain that laws of media is the third of a trilogy. Mm. Uh, and for you classics people, the other two parts are Francis Bacon uh, and uh, uh, Vico, Gian Battista oh, Vico. Wow with the Novum Organon and the Sienza Nuova, the new science. Fascinating. I didn't know he drew those connections. Oh yeah, yeah no, no, it's yeah. very deliberate. Yeah. They're, they're considered to be related works. Mm-hmm. I 
I was thinking of the ratio of the senses uh, at the beginning of the conversation when you uh, talked about Marshall's stroke. Uh, and mm-hmm. in a sense, I don't, language isn't quite a sense in the way that we think of touch and and uh, sight and hearing, but that but that somehow something in the experience was recalibrated um, and how we perceive the world because we're unable to to speak about it. I was reminded of Thomas Aquinas, uh, who, who late in his life famously has this kind of mystical experience and, um, uh, it, it transforms his own understanding of, of theology and everything that he had written. Um, and, and I began to wonder if anybody, uh, if, if there was any parallel there, not in the sense that, that Marshall had a, a mystical experience. Some people think that Aquinas had a stroke, uh, at that point, uh, but that there's this similar kind of transformation late in life. And I am, I'm here just kind of pulling things together that have just occurred to me as you've been talking. And I don't know if there's anything there or not, uh, but I, I think but there I is. It... I would assume there is. Um, as you hint at, Marshall was a, a deeply religious man. Right. Um, he converted to Catholicism in his twenties when he was in Cambridge University. Um, and he had a rich, um, me- meaningful developed relationship with God. Um, he read, he read his Bible every morning in several languages. Um, and he did this, uh, he was killing two birds with one stone there. That is, he, he got to read his scripture. Um, but the great thing about the Bible, whenever he traveled, um, he would, uh, if he's in a foreign country, you know, you open the, the dresser drawer and there's a Gideon's Bible mm-hmm. in whatever local language. And the great thing about the Bible um, and its translations is they're fanatical about the translation, right? So uh, it's a great way to learn a language mm-hmm. because you, you can trust that the translation is faithful yeah. from language to language to language. Mm-hmm. So um, Marshall would read his Bible in a few different languages every morning. Oh. Um, and this, this was um, killing another bird with the same stone because um, – his approach to studying media was a field approach, whereas um, conventional studies were very siloed. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his, he was always trying to widen his perspective. And um, languages are lanes, right? Um, we, every language is, has its limitations. Um, a word means something in English and it means something a little different in French and something a little different in Spanish and, uh, in Swahili and whatever else. And they're all just different ways of understanding of, of looking. Mm-hmm. Um, as Flaubert said, style is a way of seeing. There mm-hmm. are different modes of perception. And in order to study technology, Marshall was always trying to widen his perception. Mm-hmm. And one way of doing this was through language. Um, this is why Marshall paid such attention to language. And you'll see in his work and in talking, he always brings up the way words are used because um, changes in the environment and culture are registered in, you know, in our, our struggle to relate them using the tools right. we have, right. which for most people is language. Yeah. For some people is a, a brush and pen, uh, ink mm-hmm. or paint or sculpture or music. Yeah. Um, so you can, Marshall studied the evolution of language as um, to give him insight into the evolution of technology and its effects. 
Um, and we can still do this today. It's, it's one of the, the easy ways to look at what's happening around us mm-hmm. is to study how, how culture is responding through its use of language. Yeah. Um, so as to the stroke, Marshall may have not been able to hold a conversation with you or I, but it didn't harm his conversation with his God. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't think. Yeah. Uh, and I imagine that brought him a lot of comfort and I imagine it deepened that relationship. And maybe there was something a little deeper that we might call mystical to go mm-hmm. along with it. It's mm-hmm. not for I to say, but to yeah. imagine. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I think that's a, a great place to, to wrap up. Um, I really appreciate your time. I'll, uh, like I said, c- commend uh, listeners to the McLuhan Institute and to your work, uh, add links to the various sources you listed. And uh, thank you for, for continuing the McLuhan legacy, which has meant so much uh, to so many of us. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's, I always, I love talking about this stuff, so I appreciate it. Thank you so much.